0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Burn Your Draft, an exploration of the Reed College senior thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Frank Tangerlini, and this week we'll be talking with Jerry Pena Martinez. Ads for cigarettes do not interrupt social life like they used to. Today we'll hear from Jerry on their research of the responsive nature of cigarette advertisements to the socio-political environment of the time.
1: Hello, I guess maybe. Um, <laughs> I am Jerry Benya Martinez. I am from Long Beach, California, but I also sometimes claim Mexico just because I spent so much of my childhood there, but now I reside in Long Beach. I am an ad hoc econ art history major, and I just defended my thesis yesterday. Um, nice. So that's where I am in terms of the process.
0: How did that go?
1: I overestimated how much intensity it was. I prepared like four pages of notes. I like synthesized all of my arguments. I was like, in this chapter, this is what I'm building. These are the quotes and the statistics that support it. And it really wasn't about that. They really just asked like follow up questions of, well, if you say this, how would you go further on this? And it was a lot less about fine-tuning the individual argument I was saying, but more of the grander picture of like, what are you trying to claim, and how are you supporting it? And it was a lot less about the minutiae, which was really nice. I definitely overprepared.
0: So what is your title of your thesis?
1: Smoke Gifts in Your Eyes, Advertisements and Audiences of the 20th Century Cigarette Industry.
0: Oh, nice. Okay. So what is that about?
1: So basically what I'm covering is from an earlier history about the 1880s, 1890s, but really centered around the evolution of the reception and picture and image of a cigarette from 1910, up until 1990s, when I stopped my data, but I'm really looking to visual culture from 1910 to 1980, and seeing this rise, fall, and repositioning of the cigarette industry within this new cultural environment that they're trying to look at. Really specifically looking at how, at the very beginning of the century, the cigarette was this vilified object. This um, a phrase um, to describe it was called a race poison, and it was called um, an infection from an inferior breed of people. And so going from that into this quite a Central American product because of World War One. I'm thinking of also the celebrity endorsements in the middle of the century, the Marlboro Man, and this really big uptick of the cigarette for then the Surgeon General Report in 1964 to completely change that. And all of a sudden we see this repositioning of the cigarette and so they have to wrestle with, well, this is who we advertised to before, who do we now to picture in our images. And so I'm looking at how women and people of color, specifically African Americans, are represented in or lack thereof in these media, in these advertisements throughout the period and explaining the rationale for that from an economic perspective. And that's kind of the flow of my thesis.
0: So if I'm I'm hearing or if I'm getting this correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Cigarettes were first a topic of saying that they were a bad product and then they moved to an American product, which then Completely wiped away all of the, I don't know, all of what was then being said. I guess, but I mean, in a different, also racist. Yeah, way. I
1: wouldn't say wiped away because there were still like so something that formed was called the Anti-Cigarette League in 1911 by Lucky Page Gaston, um, and she like ran for president on the on the whole her whole whole platform was let's get rid of the cigarette in like the 1920s. Um, so it still didn't disappear, but it was so much less prevalent. Like, if we compare this to, um, I have a graph in my thesis of just showing how much tobacco consumption varies. And in 1899, I think that's the correct year, cigarette in as a substitute of tobacco was less than 1% of consumption. And then that balloons to being over 90 something percent by the middle of the century. And also, just looking at in terms of production and American yes but it's not a complete wipe away but yes at the very beginning of the century cigarettes were vilified and were seen as this racial poison but also this social outcast um, mostly due to the types of people who were holding it so the types of people who could hold the cigarette previously were um this term comes later but new women so like prostitutes actresses people outside of the social norm um and then also immigrant workers which were disproportionately like people of color and other racial and ethnicities that weren't like white and American. Um, and so that's why that category came up. And then something else I talk about, this feels like a mini-orals almost in that I'm like rearticulating my argument, which is good. Um, but basically in World War I, because the cigarettes had the specific physical qualities, so as compared to chew, which was the most popular form of tobacco at that time, um, it could be packed away in bags and it was really tightly sealed and it was a lot cleaner for like the modern audiences. And because of that soldiers would take it up. And then because of that, Americans back home would pay or would send cigarettes over to help them. Um, one fund called the Soldiers Fund by the New York Sun, which is a newspaper in three months collected over 3.7 million cigarettes for soldiers abroad. And so that completely repositioned how the cigarette was like held and seen. And so then we saw this wave of soldiers holding the cigarette and um, and so that's the, teens and like going into the 20s and then we see like men being the center of how they branded and like have the identity of a cigarette smoker and then after that one society's like okay we can also accept these people cigarettes follow behind and also include different types of bodies into their advertisements in different ways
0: wow that's a very interesting topic uh how did you focus on that did you look at it from just the advertisement view, or did you also go into the economics of it?
1: So my journey to my thesis as an ad hoc, ad hoc major is a little bit prolonged because I had to petition the departments in my sophomore year. So the very first idea of my thesis was I, I'm going to look at disreality and contemporary advertisements, so looking at like scales and all of these like fantastical advertisements because I'm like, what is the point of this advertisement that makes no claim? Um, which actually has a purpose. And I talk about it in my thesis, um, just because there's like two forms of advertisement. Um, and so that was a very early iteration of it. And that slowly transformed into, I was talking to a friend who was trying to quit smoking and they're talking about like smoking as like, like a part of themselves and like something that they've done so long, it's, it's about to have habit, obviously for addiction. Um, but I was also wondering like, well, people also do construct like identities and a sense of self throughout the cigarette. And then I transitioned to the cigarette. And then I proposed at the end of my junior year that I would study the 60s, 70s and 80s because I obviously knew about the Surgeon General's report. And I thought about that period as a really interesting way to look at how identity shifted along those periods and how they targeted uh, people of color and like queer folk after the fact in that period, which I knew about. Um, but actually I was reading this book, um, uh, what's it called? It's called The Cigarette Century by Brandt and then some other colon, some other words. Um, but of the 500-page book, he only spends about 40 or 50 pages talking about the pre-1930s, but often references back to that period. And so I was really, really interested by that. And then I found another book that specifically just books on that period, and they have 250 pages about it. And so then I changed my topic from just talking about the 60s, 70s, and 80s to talking about this rise and fall you know, instead of just this, like, reorientation, I wanted to see this more macro perspective. Well, how are people shifting along that? And I use the advertisement as um, the visual artifact, that's a term by a theorist, but like the visual artifact of how culture sees people. And so then I was looking at, okay, they're making these shifts, they're making these clientele, but why are they Advertising, like, what is the benefit of doing this? And so then I, from the economic lens, look at, well, okay, if they produce advertisements, what are some gains? Some gains include, um, information, a information. So giving out more information so that clients will have better estimates, estimates, estimates of evaluation. And so that they can then lower the risk factor. Um, to purchase and they're really willing to pay more or the people who absolutely don't like it, they'll drop out until then there's a rotation of the demand curve. Um, There's also then the additional effect of that is it creates barriers to entry, which can help um, solidify monopolistic power in the the industry. Um, What else? (laughs) Uh, There can also then be transformational ads which can convert or redistribute demand within the industry, which is also talking about how you can signal good and then the, the person will take in the picture and then respond to that and you hopefully go into purchase and that's kind of really the crux of my argument is this dialect between um which again i'm also using very specific terms that like make sense in the thesis so if something doesn't make sense please pause me and correct me It's basically this dialect of mental image by the firm that translates into a picture which is the advertisement and gets retaken by the client and create their own image and then they make a comparison between the two images that they constructed and the more similar they align, um, the more likely they are to purchase and also through the power of indexation. So the more they see themselves in the advertisement, the more easily they can image their own consumption of the product. And so I'm looking at the advertisement as that mediating product, but also then understanding from the two agents in that economic transition, the, the rationale of like, why do consumers take in information and then how and why do firms produce that type of information and thus produce a picture and images of a client
0: wow <laughs> all right <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's if you listen to anybody talk about thesis like as they go further from in depth you're like yeah you did spend seven months researching a topic like exclusively
0: well it sounds like you started work junior or sophomore year too did that contribute anything to your process?
1: Definitely. I knew very early on, like the type of thing I wanted to look at. So I was having meetings with professors about like, oh, this is something I'm kind of interested in. They would like give me little nudges here and there, Um, especially because my, no one in my department really specialized in my topic. I found good support from, um, there was a visiting professor, um, Brian Terrell, and he's like an American historian, but he brought up the Alan Brandt book to me. And that's, and that was like in the second week of class. And that really helped me like find a good historical foundation and also ultimately changed the theory that I was talking about. And then also the story I was trying to tell. Um, so I got a lot of support. And also, yes, I think I was also very, very fortunate. And I knew what I wanted to do. And so I could think about that earlier. And I got settled really, really quickly.
0: So tell me, you kind of talked a little bit about this with your friend. But why did you choose this topic?
1: I chose this topic because I've always been interested in advertising. Let's um, Gifts in Your Eyes is both a famous song from the time period and is also the title of the very first episode of Mad Men when they talk about Lucky Strike cigarettes. <laughs> and so I've always been fascinated in these advertisements and my original conception was about well, why the hell do firms advertise if they're just going to throw like this weird wrestling competition over Skittles with dogs that have really strong right arms. And so that whole idea just baffled me completely. And so it was really just this like really perplexing interest in advertisements. And the more I like research advertisements, the more I was like, this is so intricate and interesting because there have been like various theories on advertisements, but it also, and this was kind of one of the challenges I faced like throughout my topic is so many fields have approached it differently. Uh, one of the, yeah, one of the, the issues me and my advisors ran against was I was bringing in like anthro and psych and history which were like valid, but they also just like made my topic balloon so quickly. I really wasn't having my own argument because I was spending so much time just saying, well, this theory says this and that theory says that. And so it was also a big struggle of just condensing everything down into a clear narrative that wasn't bogged down by, well, this is what psychologists think about information reception, which did make it in the bridge version of my thesis, but it was originally like seven pages.
0: It was turning into kind of a literary review type thing.
1: Yeah, a literary review of like multiple disciplines that was just unruly. It's still a little unruly yes. to be completely honest, just because I'm also just covering almost a century of history and I have to historicize every image and every statistic to be like, well, 1920s, what is relevant for you to know in this period? Which was also a big issue for me because I was like, well, you need to know everything. And then Dana, rightfully so, Dana Captain Art History, who was one of my advisors, was like, well, no, you don't need everything. You have to pick your fights.
0: So how long did your thesis end up being?
1: Um, so the very end of my thesis, I think, is 65 pages, something thereabouts.
0: That is that is a long thesis.
1: <laughs> the amount of pages you produce is not the metric of like success or like how much effort you put into it, because different topics meet different needs. But the shortest thesis that I know of is a one-page math thesis. And then the longest one is like that 300-page blue one at the very top of the thesis tower.
0: So what's the, what was the outcome of your thesis? And was it what you expected when you started?
1: Definitely not. On the onset, I thought I was going to talk, talk a lot more about information asymmetry and how well a picture can notate a good. That was like my original idea when I started in like August. I was like, this, these are the theories I'm going to use. These are like the... A topic I want to argue for. And then another professor was like, well, if you already know your argument, why is this a thesis you should do? If you already know what you want to say, that that isn't what you should be doing. And so then I started the research and uh, as I already mentioned, the, the chronology change and how I was talking about it completely changed. As really as I was like really trying to grapple with it and also the cultural history and trajectory became so much more interesting to me. To quote Brandt, the rise, fall, and deadly persistence of the product that defined America, that's the, the terms he used to describe the cigarette century was just so much more engrossing and so much, something I'd never known about really. Like I'd obviously known about 63 and the post SGR period, but this earlier period was so much interesting in this race poison and all of these different types of prints and advertisements around it. And again, I expected to cover the time period of 60s, 70s, 80s. That was my debt. that I was like, a chapter in the 60s, a chapter in the 70s, chapter in the 80s, boom, work set, this is perfect. But again, I came in with too strong of an image and I didn't. It wasn't until I left the research guide me that it really became, I think, a better thesis at the end. Because so it is, I think, a good story to see this rise, fall, but also within this rise and fall, the different agents that like are brought into the advertising that's seen as viable um, clients. It became a look at how goods make claims of identity uh, for the consumer and how firms cultivate the clientele they attract by the picture they presented in the the advertisement. I think that was the final outcome that I'm. A lot happier with, I think, than I would have been talking about all the intricacies of information asymmetry because it became so much more of this broader argument about identity claims and how goods can be extensions of self and representations of self. And in my old, we actually talked about, like, well, how could this connect with alcohol? And I hadn't really thought about it um, because I mean, it came up because. In the earlier period, cigarettes were linked with promiscuity and alcoholism, which during the temperance movement just worsened the condition for the cigarette. But when they brought it up, I was like, yeah, like similarly, like they center their identity around like a male consumer. Like there's Americanness. I'm thinking of like the Budweiser commercial specifically, or how PBR has like this The red white and blue stripes like there is such like an american quality to beer and also like addictive quality to it and also similarly it's it's like taxed and has like these regulations around the youth and i quickly realized that yeah alcohol would be a, a really interesting segue or another like path i could have taken this advertising but also this idea of like good as an identity claim speaks broadly to everything like Clothing, shoes, anything that has a public-facing element to it has this element of it, and I think that was the bigger argument that I loved about my thesis.
0: So, if you went to Times Square, you would just have
1: like, oh my god! Well, it's actually really interesting that you bring up Times Square. Is one of the one of the common anecdotes that people give at the very beginning of cigarette um, histories. Fun fact, just because I've read so many of them, but they always begin with the Camel Man um, billboard in Times Square. It was installed in nineteen forty one on the corner of Broadway and I wanna say forty fourth, but it was basically this big sign of a camel man pulling a drag from a cigarette and it would actually blow smoke, which was just water vapor, on um Broadway. And so this was like this big sign and Brent actually begins about how as a child he'd cross the bridge and see and be welcomed to Camel Man. And I kind of also suddenly use that as like like they're publicly displaying it in Times Square. It's just such an, a monumental product and it's such an icon of America. So we put on Broadway and Times Square and like all of these other main cultural facets. And so then, similarly, in 1966, it gets taken down. That becomes another big point of we see these, some of them see them literally taking away the cigarette as a part of American identity. And then we obviously see the the subsequent bannings of public advertisement and advertisements in TV and all these other restrictions on their the publication. But the fact that the billboard was published and smoked, which is another part of my thesis, um, was within if a body's included, how it included, so whether or not they're used as a prop. So like black bodies are often used as like butlers and maids um, and servants in these early advertisements, serving a cigarette for a white body. and Then later on, we see people holding them in different forms and then also the ability to see smoke in the advertisements because Um, in the earlier periods we see smoke, but once the SGR report or SGR comes out, um, we see like little to no smoke and then it completely disappeared by now. Like when is the last time you've seen an actual cigarette being used in a cigarette advertisement? And so that's the other element of my thesis is like the sensorium and like the presence of the cigarette within its own advertisement.
0: So were there any unexpected challenges that you encountered while writing your thesis?
1: I think one of the ones I mentioned earlier was just the amount of breath I had to cover. So in terms of time period and also topics, I it was both a fight and also like a, a tandem race with my advisors to figure out what I should include in my thesis. Because so I was like, well, everything's relevant. I need to have every statistic, every every little thing. And my advisor was very quickly like, no, I'm not going to read a 300 page thesis. Because <laughs> um, I read, I read um, a National Cancer Institute report, which basically covered what I was kind of arguing. They um, in 1998, they published a report that basically said advertisements' influence on um, quote racial and ethnic minorities um, on tobacco consumption, the effect of tobacco consumption in racial and ethnic minorities, um, and they basically summarized like, well, they see higher propensities in this group versus that group. Um, and I was like, well, if I really wanted to cover this, they spent 600 pages just talking about the statistics of it, um, so I really needed to like narrow it down. So that was one issue was just the breadth of what i was trying to cover i mentioned earlier trying to bring in filthier and acto which made its way in periphery in the periphery um but i needed to just focus on the economics and the art history of it but even within the art history of it i'm covering such a time large time period i looked at literally thousands of advertisements and then i had to pick and choose um i think i ended up using uh, yeah i ended up using just 15 prints to highlight some of the trends I'm looking at. And some of them I went in deeper and some of them I'm just like, here's three examples of the trend I just talked about. Okay, moving on. And others, others, one of them I went in critically about like, well, here we see this type of body engaging in this way. But that was, I think also like a big time that I spent just going through the database of literally thousands of advertisements. And the other, the database I was using by Stanford would have the prints catalogued in multiple ways and so they would reappear and so i would see some of the prints multiple times and i had to figure out like okay is this a reprint of a print is it not why and so on and so forth it was it was a mess
0: how did you get access to those databases
1: so this actually is an interesting development because in part of part of the junior qualifier issues you have to propose um your topic and you have to do a little bit of research and so i was in I was in the archives looking at um, cuz I thought I was going to do newspapers uh here at Reed, because I was like how something I going to get prints but while I was there I was doing some side research and like looking up statistics um there's actually in Stanford has an entire Stanford has an entire side department called oh the Stanford Research Institute for Tobacco is that what it's called it's called um I'm opening it up right now. The Stanford University research into the impact of tobacco advertising. And this whole database is free to use. So, and I found that accidentally at the end of my junior year. And it just has all of the tobacco forms, cigarettes, pods, e-cigarettes, marijuana, hookah, um, pipe cigars, all of these advertisements, and also the anti-smoking um, advertisements, just here for anyone to use. And it's thousands of advertisements. So I thankfully uh, just had access to that by accident when I found it.
0: Whoa, that sounds very cool. I might look into that. I want to see some of these ads. So what skills did you acquire or strengthen during this experience?
1: I think A, working with databases, because I'd worked with some of it in econ of just looking at statistics, but really having to dive deep into data. And um, so one of the fo- one of the softwares I use, Sarah Babyate, but the art historian librarian taught me it's called Tropy, and it was able. I was able to put all of my prints there once I selected, okay, these are some good trends I want to pull out. Here's an example, where when one with each one. I was able also to label them, and so I had like brands by years, by trends, by presence of smoking, by types of body. And so, working with that software and that database taught me how much work it is just to get like one coherent narrative with what you have, especially with. with uh, digital ones, because you can't be like, oh, sort by value, because then you have to encode each of them separately, Um, so that was one major skill I learned. I think I also, my advisor commented on this, but she could physically see me become a better writer, because I had to revisit my writing so many times, Um, like a very, still not perfect, but I've gotten better at using a comma, which is one of the main edits uh, Dana had for me. It's like, she just loves throwing commas every which way like I didn't really understand the role of a comma, so that's not better. I've also learned how to just write more succinct um, in terms of, well, do I have to say it in this way? Does this create a tautology? Like all these little fine-tuning parts, because of the way I had to revisit my thesis so many times, I learned how to be a better writer. Still not great, but definitely, definitely a much better writer in terms of like grammar, in terms of editing, and in terms of just knowing what I'm trying to say and making it one arc.
0: Yeah, right. I totally agree with that. And I think that it's a really useful skill to continue to have. Um, speaking of which, how do you think your exp- thesis experience will inform your life after read? Do you have any upcoming plans?
1: I think I really, this is going to sound so nerdy, but I also really, really want to buy one of the books for my research, um, specifically the Brandt book, because I only read up until the 1980s, and he goes into the modern um, times. Uh, and so I kind of want to buy the book and just finish that last little bit uh, because it was such like an instrumental beginning to my thesis. So I want to pay, I have to pay for my own copy of the thesis, but I also just want to have the brand book. Cause it kind of, then I have the bookmarks of like, or the book ends of this is how I began my research. This is what it ended as. And kind of like looking at them as connected. I actually mentioned working with a database, which was because of my thesis in the cover letter I had to write because um, one of the jobs I'm applying for needs to work with a lot of information and working with databases. I was like, well, I've worked with thousands of images, so how about that? So I think also very tangentially, or tangibly, not tangentially, very tangibly, um, the thesis is working into my career, um, which I didn't fully imagine because I wanted to work with like community engagement and arts and like creating resources, so I didn't directly see how this was gonna influence that. But I'm happy to say that it is, and also just the capacity to write is so much better uh, I can also claim that I'm published which is such a weird thing to be able to do because I mean like in my family the only people who have graduated college is my older sister and I so like kind of first gen kind of not because of my older sister but it's still very much like uh, like such a momentous part of my life.
0: Cool so your thesis was amazing <laughs> hearing about it was amazing I am I want to learn more I want to I want to read your thesis thank you but i also want to go on that database so
1: i spent too many too many hours down that rabbit hole
0: have a yeah have a good day and keep wearing your laurels they look great (laughs) bye bye thank you jerry for your time and for telling us about your thesis and the amount and kinds of work that went into it Thank you for listening, and I hope you join us again to talk to more seniors about their thesis and better understand why you'd want to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Frank Tangerlini. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class in 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janiga. Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016, is our project manager. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham, class of 2020. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.